You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and thank you for joining us at the Explorers Podcast. I want to take a moment before we begin today's episode and talk a little bit about the podcast. I know that it's been a few months since we've had anything new, but I want you to know that that was not my intention, and I fully intend to keep doing the podcast. Basically, what happened was uh, I moved about a thousand miles, and things did not quite turn out as I planned, and we ended up in temporary housing. This made it a little difficult to produce the podcast. That said, I'm back at work, and I expect to be on a more regular schedule, hopefully at least a couple times a month. So thank you everyone for your patience. I look forward to producing the episode on a more regular basis for you guys. Now, regarding this upcoming episode, for everyone who contacted me wondering where it was, well, here you go. We are on part two of Francisco de Oriana. I do want to note that the recording of this episode occurred over different times and locations. And as I edited this one, I did notice that I did make a few mistakes. Specifically, I wanted to point out I messed up a few names as I went. Normally, even if I pronounce someone's name wrong, I like to get one pronunciation and stick with it. I did notice that I didn't do that for this last episode. You'll notice that the pronunciation of a couple of names gets changed as I went. That was kind of a product of the erratic nature of the production of this episode. I apologize for that. I really don't think it hurts anything in this episode. It's just something that I noticed and I wanted to mention to you. Again, thanks to everyone for their patience. And here you go. Here is more Explorers. Last time on Explorers, we left Spanish conquistador Francisco de Oriana at the headwaters of the Amazon. Along with 50 survivors, he had elected to sail down the Amazon River in a bid to return to civilization. In doing so, he was cutting ties with his boss, Gonzalo Pizarro. The previous year, Pizarro, with Oriana as his second command, had led an army over the Andes in search of the fabled El Dorado, the city of gold. As for Pizarro, after a long and torturous trek through the jungle and back over the mountains, he had returned to Quito in June of 1542. Only 80 of his 200 men were still alive. Pizarro felt that Oriana had abandoned him and viewed him as a traitor. But Pizarro had other things to worry about, because his brother, Francisco Pizarro, had been murdered by rivals the previous year. A new civil war was brewing in Peru, and the only thing that Gonzalo Pizarro could do about Oriana was write an angry letter to the Spanish crown, accusing his former subordinate of treason. As for Francisco de Oriana, he set off down the Amazon on April 24, 1542. 
He knew that he would be relatively safe for the next 250 miles or so, but after that, he was warned that he would come to a more populous region, and the people would not be friendly toward him or his men. But before we get back to the river with Oriana, a few things. First, one item I forgot to include in the last part of our story was that in 1538, during the civil war between the Almagro and Pizarro factions in Peru, Oriana had lost an eye in the fighting. Now, losing an eye really doesn't change our story, but I have to admit it alters the picture of our subject. I mean, it's very piratey, the whole eye patch thing. And when we recount this tale, I have this vision of what things might have looked like. And placing an eye patch on Oriana does give him a little different feel and look. So, nothing huge here, but going forward, put an eye patch on Francisco de Oriana. Second, I want to talk a little bit about the Amazon River itself. Our story is a bit odd because the Amazon River, one of the greatest, if not the greatest river in the world, was explored by Oriana from the headwaters to the mouth. It's usually the other way around. A person heads up a river to find out where it starts. But not this time, so that's kind of unique. So, a little bit about the Amazon. The Amazon River is probably the most extraordinary river in the world. It is roughly 4,000 miles long, the second longest after the Nile. It is really, as the crow flies, about 2,000 miles long, but with all the twisting and turning, it doubles in length. And while the Nile may be a bit longer than the Amazon, the latter overwhelms the Nile, at least physically. No river delivers as much volume of water to the ocean as the Amazon. One-fifth of the world's freshwater drainage comes from this massive river. In fact, the drainage from the Amazon is so huge, it is five times greater than the next closest river, the Congo, which is in Africa. The volume of the water is so great because so many other rivers drain into the Amazon. In fact, over 500 rivers drain into the Amazon River. All of this combines into a massive, and I keep using that word, but it is very appropriate. All of this combines into this massive single entity we call the Amazon River. Some other cool things about the Amazon. There is so much water coming from the river that for as far as 100 miles out into the ocean from the river's mouth, you can taste fresh water. Also, it is so wide at times that you can't see the other side. Another amazing feature is that the river changes dramatically depending on the time of year. At one physical location, the river is a mile wide during the dry season, but during the wet season, that same spot is 30 miles wide. A few final notes about the physical nature of the Amazon River. The mouth of the Amazon is not a single river pouring out into the Atlantic Ocean. The Amazon's mouth is really 200 miles wide as it breaks off into a myriad of channels. Also, on the Amazon, near the mouth of the river, there is an island called Mirajal that is roughly the size of Switzerland. That last item really isn't important to our story, but I thought it was cool, so there you go. The next thing I want to mention is the history of exploration regarding the Amazon, at least at the time of Oriana. In March of 1500, Spanish conquistador Vicente Yanez Pinzon was the first European to sail up the river. He called it Rio Santa Maria del Mar Dulce, later shortened to Mar Dulce, which translates into Sweet Sea. Penzon would only go up the river about 50 miles, but nothing more. However, the obvious size of the river immediately intrigued people. In 1531, Diego de Ordaz, a Spanish explorer, would lead an expedition up the Amazon, which at that time was called the Marinon. Ordaz had 600 men and four ships. But as noted, the Amazon is 200 miles wide at its mouth. It is a tangle of channels and estuaries. As Ordaz tried to find a way inland, he ran into storms, losing three of his four vessels and half of his men. 
Now, Ordaz would abandon the Amazon at this point due to his losses, but not before being told stories of great civilizations loaded with gold and silver and jewels that lay up the river. Now, as a note, Ordaz would abandon the Amazon and sail up the coast and then go up the Orinoco River with his survivors in an attempt to find a city of gold. But he would fail. He would ultimately die on his return voyage to Spain. But his death did not quell the stories going around that there were golden cities and great civilizations to be found in the depths of South America. Also, let's remember something. Ordaz had lost many men on the Amazon, roughly 300. So there were stories of Christians living in the jungles of South America, tales that will crop up later in our story, so we don't want to forget about them. By the way, as noted, the Amazon was known as the Maranon in Oriana's time, but I'll simply call it the Amazon for our story. It just makes things way easier. So, on with the tale of Francisco de Oriana. Oriana had two brigantines, Victoria and San Pedro, the former the bigger and more robust of the boats. Also, we should remember that Oriana had brought with him ample amounts of gunpowder and ammunition, so he would never lack for firepower. Thus, his men piled into the two boats and headed east on the Amazon. Oriana departed the lands of a powerful chief named Aparia the Great, expecting to have a smooth ride for about 250 miles, and that is what he got. Thankfully, the chief Aparia the Great had sent word downstream alerting his villages of the Spaniards' approach. Thus, for a short time, the voyage was a good one, as the natives welcomed Oriana and his men as they went. But in time, the jungles grew thicker and thicker, and villages grew further and further apart. Food would become scarce. The men took to eating herbs that they found in the jungle, as well as roasted maize that they had brought for the voyage. By May 12th, Orion and his two brigantines had entered the lands of Machiparo, a great leader and the arch-enemy to Aparia the Great and his people. By the way, in our last episode, I had called the Indians of this place the Machiparo, but Machiparo was their leader. Sorry for the confusion. Anyhow, Machiparo's kingdom encompassed about two to three hundred miles of the river. It was heavily populated, far more so than anything the Spanish had encountered up to this point. Oriana reported that in one twenty-mile stretch there were homes constantly along the shores. Apari the Great had warned Oriana that Machiparo and his people would attack him, and the chief was correct. Once in Machiparo's land, it didn't take long for his people to swarm toward the two brigantine in their canoes. From the shore, they would throw spears and shoot arrows. The natives had shields made of the hides of manatees and tapers, but they were of little use against the Spanish steel and the bullets and the crossbow bolts. The Spanish wore metal helmets and breastplates and chainmail, although many of the men wore lighter armor, which was more suited to the tropical environment. No matter whatever armor they wore, it was vastly superior to anything the natives had encountered, and it would make the Spanish nearly invulnerable. So, in order to form a better defensive formation, Oriana ordered his two brigantines lashed together as a way to better support one another. He then readied his arquebuses and crossbows. Unfortunately, in this first encounter, the Spanish would find that their gunpowder was damp and their weapons misfired. It was up to the crossbowmen to repulse the attackers. Remember, the Indians' armor was limited, and they had never had to deal with the force of a crossbow bolt. The crossbow was made to pierce plate armor, so you can imagine what it would do to a human being. If you got hit, it was devastating. Thus, the first wave of canoes faltered as those in the front ranks were torn to pieces by the Spanish crossbow fire. But the native numbers were overwhelming, and the attack quickly regained steam. The natives in the canoes had spears and clubs, and as they approached, the Spanish readied lances and swords. 
The fight on the river would continue, and Oriana was worried his ships would be overwhelmed. Thus, he ordered his two brigantines to the shore. In some ways, it seems like getting stuck on the shore was a sure way for the Spanish to get overwhelmed, but we cannot forget the value of a sword in the hands of a capable soldier. The natives had never faced steel weapons like those wielded by the Spanish. Throughout the New World, the sword, more than any other weapon, was the key instrument of conquest for the Europeans. A group of well-trained soldiers, and this is what Oriana had at his disposal, with good swords could defeat 10 or 20 times their number. Whatever armor the natives had was nearly worthless against the Spanish steel, and the military precision and tactics the Spanish employed were highly effective. So, Oriana would land his brigantines, and half of his men would deploy and quickly scatter the Indians. The Spanish would find the village enormous and the land prosperous. There was a lot of food, including elaborate farms of turtles, something that surprised the Europeans. They would also find beans, maize, yams, pineapples, peppers, avocados, peanuts, and honey. There was also fish and manatee meat. Oriana had one of his lieutenants, Cristobal de Segovia, gather up as much food as possible. They would load up the brigantines with turtles, maize, dried meats, and whatever else could be had. I do want to make a quick note here. Cristobal de Segovia was also known as Maldonado, and that's how I'm going to refer to him going forward, as he will play a part in our story later on. Anyhow, back to the fighting. While the Spanish foraged for food, the natives, whose numbers were estimated to be more than 500, would regroup and launch a counterattack, and the Spanish would be forced back to their boats. The fighting would go on for at least two hours, and while the Spanish would return to their boats and get a lot of food and continue with their journey, the price had been stiff. More than a third of the company had been injured, nine of the men seriously. Remarkably, there had only been one death. But it is here that Oriana realized that he could not conquer the native peoples. He had to stick to a plan. This was not a journey of conquest, but one of discovery and exploration. It was something Pizarro would probably never have considered. So, despite being back on the river, the Spanish were in a perilous situation. The Indian numbers were only growing. There were thousands of men along the shore, and hundreds more in canoes on the trail of the brigantines. Oriana ordered his ships forward. Fighting was pointless. The men got behind the gunwales of the brigantines, tightened their helmets and armor, and rode furiously. Arrows and spears rained down on them. It was like a tank driving through a crowd. The Spanish responded to the Indian threats with fire from their crossbows, as well as their arquebuses, now that the powder was dry. The pursuit of the brigantines would go on through the night, with the natives launching continual attacks. When day arrived, the fighting grew even more intense as the Spanish came upon more settlements along the river. The Spanish firepower was devastating, but the Indians' numerical superiority was daunting, and the fighting would continue all day as the two brigantines made their way downriver. The Spanish would have virtually no time to stop and eat or rest. They would end up fighting a running battle for more than 24 hours straight. At this point in the fighting, the Spanish ships were chased by hundreds of canoes and forced down a narrow channel, where the natives had set up an ambush. As the Spanish entered the channel, hundreds, maybe thousands of Indians, appeared on the shore, ready to throw spears and shoot arrows at the invaders. Oriana ordered his finest marksman, Hernan Gutierrez de Solis, to target the Indian who appeared to be the chief of the natives. De Solis would shoot the chief in the chest, momentarily sending a panic through the ranks of the natives. Sensing an opportunity, Oriana ordered his ships forward as fast as possible. The brigantines would make it past the ambush and continue downriver. The running battle on the river would continue for two more days, the Spanish eating at their post and catching moments of sleep whenever possible, which was not often. 
The domains of Machiparo would go on for more than 200 miles, with settlements peppering the Amazon's banks. Oriana reported that these were an advanced people, and he wanted to come back and gather the riches he assumed that they possessed. After about four days of sailing downriver, Oriana would finally exit the lands of Machiparo. Thankfully, the constant attacks on the two boats would cease. Next, the Spanish were entering the lands of the Omaguas, a people ruled by a chief named Aniguaval. Oriana had been warned that the Omagas were a fierce and warlike people, so he expected no respite from the fighting. I do want to note that Oriana referred to the locals in this location as the Omaguas, but the Omaguas are actually further up the river, maybe even the people of Aparia the Great, the chief who had helped the Spanish earlier. That he confuses some of the names of the tribes is not a huge deal, but I thought I'd mention it since it might be confusing if you want to go back and look at the details of Oriana's journey. Just know that I'll refer to these natives of the Omaguas, since that's what Oriana called them. So, by this time, the Spanish were in desperate need of food and rest. Oriana would attack the first Omagua village that they encountered, a small outpost on the edge of their territory. The Spanish scattered the surprised Omaguas, and they would stay at the outpost for three days, eating and resting and recuperating from the recent fighting. The Spanish said that the Omaguas were advanced people, noting their very fine highways that led from the village. Unfortunately for Oriana, he found that he could not understand the local dialect. Meeting, negotiating, and gathering information was going to be difficult. As for food, the Spanish found a biscuit-like concoction of yuca and maize. It was a large, hard cake that was ideal for travel. At this point, Oriana and his men had gone about a thousand miles since reaching the Amazon. Continuing down the mighty river, Oriana and his two boats elected to stay in the middle of the Amazon, avoiding settlements. Still, the natives would often come out and challenge the Spanish, only to be met with crossbow and gunfire. They usually retreated after such confrontations. The only time the Spanish would land would be when they needed food or rest. One such village that they seized impressed the Spanish with its sophistication. They found beautiful and intricately made pottery in abundance, comparing it to the finest made in Europe. The Spanish would call this specific village Chinatown, or Pottery Town. On another food raid, the Spanish found gold and silver inside a temple. Oriana interrogated some of the captured natives and, using sign language, found that there was more of the precious metals in the interior of the region. Oriana called the Almaguas the most civilized people on the Amazon. He was impressed by their well-made and well-tended roads, calling them, quote, like royal highways, end quote. All of these things, the quality highways, the gold, the silver, the fine pottery, whetted Oriana's appetite for treasure. He saw a sophisticated and advanced people who he did not doubt had hordes of gold and silver and jewels. He just had to reach civilization, and he could return with a force that could exploit the people and the lands. The trip through the land of the Omaguas was long and difficult. They passed through hundreds of miles of territory, and as they got further east, the land became more populated, making it more difficult to get food and rest, as there were simply too many people in the villages. But finally, the Spanish would emerge from the lands of the Omaguas, and much to their relief, found the next region to be more friendly, at least for a short time. The natives traded food with the Spanish, and using sign language, they learned more about the surrounding lands. Oriana was tempted to head inland at one point to investigate tales of a large city, a city, he was told, that had great amounts of food, llamas, and silver. But Oriana fought off the urge to freelance. Again, he was on a mission of exploration and discovery, and his goal was to get home not try and conquer a land backed by less than 50 men. That was folly. So, going forward, Oriana would make a policy of trying to work with the natives when possible. If they were inclined to trade on friendly terms, he was good with that. But if they were hostile, he and his men would fight. 
There is one thing I want to mention about Oriana's journey that is really quite extraordinary. Perhaps you've noted that in this entire voyage down the river, the two brigantines have never run into any impassable waters. There are no waterfalls or rock-choked rapids. The truth is, the Amazon River is amazingly flat and navigable. For a 2,000-mile stretch of land, the river only descends a total of 200 feet in elevation. That really is amazing and life-saving for Ariana and his men. Sure, there were a ton of dangers on the river, but heading over a massive waterfall or getting shattered on rocks was not one of them. So, on June 4, 1542, Oriana and his two boats came to the confluence of the Negro and Amazon rivers near present-day Manas, Brazil. Actually, this is probably more of a collision of rivers, as the Negro is the seventh largest river in the world by discharge. The result was a stunning sight for the Spanish, as the two mighty rivers merged. The water from the Negro is extraordinarily black due to the nutrient-poor content of the soil that fills the river. Oriana said the river was, quote, black as ink, end quote and he called it Rio Negro, a name that is stuck to this day. The Negro is the largest blackwater river in the world. Of course, this led to some drama of its own as the confluence of the rivers created a ferocious and turbulent flow of water. The boats were forced to maneuver around tree trunks and other obstacles that had been swept into the Great River. So, Oriana kept going east, trading with the natives when possible, or fighting them if necessary. He avoided larger villages, preferring to take his chances with smaller groups of Indians. The two brigantines would make about 80 or even 100 miles in a day if things went well. The Spanish would rotate rowers and sleep in shifts as a way to keep moving. On June 7th, the Spanish came to a village along the river. They found that there were few men in the village and quickly took possession of it. The Spanish, at this point, were exhausted, and Oriana decided to acquiesce to his men's request that they rest. Unfortunately, the men of the village would return that night and launch a full-scale assault on the Spanish. It would be a fierce fight, lasting for hours. When it was done, the Spanish were victorious, but they were drained and wounded. In the fighting, the Spanish had taken some prisoners. It is here that Oriana does something very unlike him. In the wake of the battle, he took the prisoners and had them hanged, likely as a warning to the locals. I mention this because it's out of character for Oriana. Reprisals were not his thing, and the execution of prisoners were a rare display of outright brutality by the Spanish. Perhaps it was all a case of exhaustion and frustration mixed with malnutrition. Who knows? Anyhow, the Spanish would continue east, and a few days later they would come to another massive river, one that Oriana would call Rio Grande, but today is known as the Madeira River. The Madeira is the longest of the Amazon's tributaries, more than 2,000 miles long. It is wide and powerful, and the Spanish only became more and more amazed at the size and scope of the river. As the Spanish moved downriver, the villages were prosperous and large, but attempts to engage with the Indians were largely met with hostility. The Spanish reported that some of the villages had heads on poles, an ominous warning set up by the locals toward potential enemies. As a result, the Spanish kept to the middle of the river, avoiding confrontations when possible. About 150 miles east of the Madeira, Orion and his men raided a village when they ran low on food. In the raid, Oriana captured a native girl and brought her with him as he desired to learn the language. Ultimately, the girl would tell Oriana the story of some people like the Spanish, Christians, living in the region. With that, I want to remind you of Diego Ordaz. He had lost upwards of 300 men on the Amazon back in 1531. Could this be a reference to those people? Honestly, it's a fanciful story, a community of Christians in the middle of the Amazon, but this was not impossible. 
Remember, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca and a small group of Spaniards had survived eight years in the harsh lands of the North American Southwest before returning to Spanish territory back in the 1530s. It's likely that Oriana had heard about Cabeza de Vaca's amazing story, so who knows. In the end, this really doesn't matter much to our story, but later on the possibility of Christians stranded in the region will help convince others to further explore the river. So I just wanted to make that note. Now, it is around this time that the Spanish would run into one of their most difficult situations. The natives would attack the two brigantines, and while the attacks were not overwhelming, they were relentless. For five days, the two brigantines would be hounded by the Indians of the region. There would be almost no rest for the Spanish. They would sleep whenever possible, the men rotating on the oars. But more than not, they would be fending off attacks. The attacks were really not that dangerous. The natives' weapons, spears and bows and arrows, just couldn't penetrate the Spanish armor or the gunnels of the brigantines. But the relentless pressure presented a different situation. The Spanish could not land to get food, and they could barely sleep. The risk of simply being overwhelmed by sleep and malnutrition, and the natives, was ever-present. After five days of this continual fighting, the pressure would lighten, and Oriana would finally risk a landing at a village. The locals fled, and the Spanish found food and alcohol, which they indulged in liberally. They would then move on. The next incident I'm going to talk about is probably the most famous encounter that Oriana and the Spanish had while on the Amazon. On June 24, 1542, the Spanish came upon a large native village. Oriana offered the natives gifts when they approached, but the Indians scoffed at the offerings. Sensing that a fight was in the making, Oriana went on the offensive. His plan was to land and scatter the natives before they could organize their defense, a frequent tactic of his. His men would then seize food, and the two boats would be on their way before any real defense could be organized. So Oriana would unleash his smoke and thunder, his arquebuses, on the native canoes, who then fled. He then landed his two brigantines, his men quickly falling into battle formation. What follows is the largest and most dangerous battle that the Spanish were involved in in their trek down the Amazon. Oriana's initial landings had frightened the Indians, but they were far more numerous than he had anticipated. The Indians would rally their numbers and quickly go on the offensive against the Spanish. Now, this response by the natives isn't so out of the ordinary, but the descriptions provided by Oriana and Father Caraval would be controversial. The Spanish reported that the natives were led into the fight by tall, pale women with long braided hair. These women fought on the front lines and were obvious leaders. These women were dubbed Amazons by Oriana, a reference to the legendary women warriors found in Greek mythology. Now, I want to talk more about the Amazon warriors, but before we do that, I want to recount the events of the day first. The fighting between the Spanish and the Indians would be fierce and last for about an hour. The Spanish would kill seven or eight of the Amazons, and resistance would collapse, at least for a time. The priest, Caraval, would take an arrow to the ribs, but it was not deep. Oriana would order his men back to the boats, taking with him a native he had captured. The Spanish were initially not followed, but there was a reason for that. It seems that the natives had set up an ambush at a narrow point along the river, hoping to catch the Spanish by surprise and rain down arrows on the interlopers. As a result, the Spanish would be forced to run yet another gauntlet. In the subsequent attack, Father Caraval would get hit by another arrow, this one in the eye. During the ambush, the San Pedro would find itself on the shore, desperately fighting for survival. The Victoria, however, would provide cover fire, allowing the smaller brigantine to escape. Ultimately, the Spanish got past the ambush and continued downriver, the natives on their heels. When the pursuit finally ended, the exhausted Spanish rested on an island in the river. But their rest would not last long, as the next morning, 200 large canoes, 
each carrying 20 to 30 men, appeared, blocking the Spanish descent down the Amazon. The Spanish used the time-honored tradition of unleashing their arquebuses and crossbow fire on the natives, specifically targeting anyone who appeared to be a chief or a leader of any kind. The tactic would work, as the canoes would scatter and allow the Spanish to pass. For the first time in days, Oriana and his men would find themselves free from fighting and harassment. They would rest and recuperate. It's at this point that I want to backtrack a moment and talk about the female warriors that the Spanish had reported encountering. Remember, after the battle with the Amazons, the Spanish had taken with them a prisoner. Oriana, who had learned the basics of the native tongue, asked the man about the women warriors. The man reported that they were a warrior race who lived in the interior of the jungle. They did not marry, and no men lived with them. The women would capture men in war when they wanted to have a child, and when they were pregnant, they would send him back to his people. If the Amazon child was a boy, he was sent to his father, or killed. A girl was raised as part of the tribe. Oriana was told that the queen of the Amazons had lots and lots of gold and silver. As I mentioned earlier, this is the most controversial of Caraval's stories, and the dubious nature of the tale has cast doubt on everything else he wrote about the journey. So, what can we say about these Amazon women? Well, mostly we have just speculation. Here are some of the theories. Theory 1. Oriana had encountered a group of women warriors. While unusual, it would not have been impossible. As for the women being pale or white, it's possible that Oriana had added this as an embellishment, a way to enhance their mystique. Or maybe they had whitewashed their skin. Who knows? In the end, Oriana just told the story to entice future investors for his return to the region. Theory 2. It was all BS. Oriana was just trying to get people interested in financing a return to the Amazon. A story of white woman warriors was no doubt something that would fascinate many, and they would want to find out more. Ultimately, we don't know what is true and what is not. My best guess is that the Spanish did encounter some women warriors, and Oriana and Caraval decided to add some spice to them. But that's just a guess. No matter what, the Spanish were now clear of the land of the Amazons, and for the first time in days, they weren't in combat or harassed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, downriver the Spanish boats went. They would arrive at the confluence of the Amazon River and the Tapajos River, near modern-day Santiram, Brazil. Shortly thereafter, the Spanish were attacked, yet again. This time, they were attacked by natives covered in black soot. Oriana reported that they were very tall and warlike, and said that they were cannibals. He called the area Provincia de los Negros, the province of the black men. The captive Indians said the lands were good here, and the local kingdom large and powerful. Because of the dangers, the Spanish continued to avoid landing unless necessary. But running out of food was always an issue, and at one point Oriana would raid several villages to obtain provisions. It was here that one of the men was hit in the foot by an arrow. Normally, this would be a minor thing, but soon the wound turned black. It turned out to be poison. The infection spread quickly, and the man would die a painful death. 
This was the first time the Spanish had encountered poison, a tactic used by many tribes in Central America. Orion and his men would keep to the middle of the river to avoid conflict, but eventually the natives would attack in force. Hundreds of the Indians would row out toward the Spanish, while thousands of others would fire arrows and spears at the boats when possible. It was a relentless assault, repelled over and over again. As before, the arquebusiers targeted those that they suspected as chiefs and leaders. It was a tactic that helped sow confusion in the ranks of the natives. During the fighting, several of the Spaniards would be hit by arrows, and each would die from poison. But, as before, the Spanish would plow forward, and the attacks would fade and eventually end. Exhausted, Oriana ordered his men to stop and recuperate when they found a safe haven. At this point, the Spanish were about 300 miles from the ocean. As they got closer to the Atlantic, the river becomes a maze of islands and channels and tributaries. And let's remember, the mouth of the Amazon is over 200 miles wide and consists of many exit points. The journey to the mouth of the river would be an eventful one. At one point, the Spanish would land at a native village. The Indians fled, but Oriana reported finding human beings being cooked by the natives. At another village that they landed, the Spanish found something very fascinating, signs of Europeans. They discovered clay representations of sailing ships, plus actual items of European origin, including a brass sheath. It was a sign that the Great River was coming to an end. Unfortunately for Oriana, while he and his men were landing at one village, one of the brigantines, San Pedro, was impaled by a submerged log. The natives attacked the Spanish, and a fierce fight broke out, a fight that would last over three hours. The Spanish would stuff anything they could into the hole of the San Pedro, blankets and clothing and so forth, just to keep it afloat. The Spanish would then limp away from the village, badly wounded. Oriana would find a defensible place to land his ships and began to repair San Pedro. The damage was so extensive, a forge had to be created so that they could make more nails. It was also here that Oriana reported that his men were starving, and they were only saved when a dead taper was found floating in the river. A taper is a large animal the size of a horse, roughly 600 pounds. It had just died, and it would be a gift from God. The animal would feed the surviving men for a week. It would take 18 days for the Spanish to repair San Pedro. They would then continue on their journey on July 25th. Oriana recognized that the Amazon was likely coming to an end, and while he had repaired San Pedro, he needed to refit both ships for an ocean voyage. Because let's remember, getting to the Atlantic was just one step. He would have to go up the coast to reach any Spanish settlements, a voyage of over a thousand miles. So, after searching around, the Spanish found a good place to prep their two boats. They made sails from Peruvian blankets and found appropriate trees to cut down to make new masts. They also constructed bilge pumps, as they would likely have to be pumping the boats of ocean water. The Spanish would call this place Starvation Island, as food was in such short supply. Oriana and the men would spend two weeks preparing the brigantines for the open sea, and then on August 8, 1542, they would set out yet again. The last leg through the Amazon Delta was a dicey one. Remember, these men are soldiers, not sailors. Oriana reported that the tides were tricky, and the ships were frequently caught on hidden sandbars. They would often have to wait hours for the tide to rise so that a stuck ship could break free. It was a slow and torturous trek, and food was scarce in the area. Luckily, the Indians they encountered were mostly friendly, and the Spanish were able to trade on occasion. Finally, on August 25, 1542, Oriana and his two brigantines reached the Atlantic Ocean. They sailed out north of Marajal Island. It had been eight months since they had left Pizarro on the Coca River. Forty-three of the original 57 men were still alive, a pretty amazing feat. Only three of them had died in combat. The rest had died from starvation and disease and sickness. 
So, now that the Spanish were at the Atlantic, they needed to head up the South American coast. The aim was for Cubagua and Margarita Islands, small Spanish outposts on the north coast of Venezuela, about 1,400 miles away. The region around the islands was rich with pearls. For the ocean journey, each man would carry a jar full of fresh water and a satchel of roasted maize and yams. There were no pilots amongst the men, so the plan would be kept as simple as possible. The ships would just head north, along the South American coast. For the Spanish, they would strike good fortune. The small ships would catch the southern equatorial current, a strong force that would push them up the coast. It would allow them to head quickly and accurately toward their destination. The two small boats tried to stay in sight of land, but the currents didn't always cooperate. However, it was essential that the ships not drift too far out to sea, as the Spanish would need to land regularly to gather fresh water. On August 29th, a storm hit, and the two brigantines were separated. Once the storm calmed, Oriana, who commanded Victoria, could not find the other ship, and continued on. After nine days, they would pass the Orinoco River in modern-day eastern Venezuela. It was here that Victoria entered the mouth of the Dragon, one of the straits leading into the Gulf of Paris, which separates modern-day Venezuela and the island of Trinidad. The move would cause Victoria to get lost, and the Spanish would sail around for a week before they were able to escape the area. Finally, two days later, on September 11, 1542, Victoria landed in Cubagua, a small eight-square-mile island just south of the larger Margarita Island. Francisco de Orana had reached civilization, and much to his surprise, he found that San Pedro, the smaller and less sturdy of the brigantines, had arrived on the island two days before. All 43 of the men who had sailed from the Amazon mouth had made it safely to civilization. Let's recap the journey. 4,000 miles of river, mostly through hostile territory. 1,400 miles of open sea, and boats they had built from scratch. Oriana had been the rock of the expedition, rarely doing the stupid or greedy thing. In an immensely difficult situation, he had gotten his men to safety, something many other explorers failed to do throughout history. All in all, it was an extraordinary journey. So now that they were safe, Oriana got to work with Father Caraval, and taking the priest's notes, they began to write a narrative of their amazing journey. Oriana would have two copies of this document made, one to go to the Archbishop of Lima, and the second to stay with him. Oriana had plans after all, big plans, and he needed his story to accomplish those plans. Now, before we follow Oriana as he heads back to Spain to drum up support for his new expedition to travel up the Amazon, I do want to close the books on the men who accompanied him down the Amazon River. Most of these men would sail back to Panama and then return to Peru. These were soldiers, after all, and while the big trip down the Amazon had been historic, it had not gotten them any money. They needed work, and they would find work in the upcoming civil war that was about to take place, many of them fighting against Gonzalo Pizarro. Friar Caraval was one of those people who headed back to Peru. He would bring his account of the journey to the Archbishop of Lima. We'll wrap up his life for you at the end of the podcast. So, back to Oriana. Oriana was convinced that there was loot to be had in the depths of the Amazon jungles. He had seen what he felt were great civilizations, no doubt loaded with gold and silver and jewels. He dreamed of being a great conqueror like Pizarro or Cortez. To do this, Oriana would first set sail for Santa Domingo, with him would be four of the survivors of the expedition down the Amazon. This included Cristobal de Segovia, Maldonado. Maldonado agreed to serve as Oriana's chief lieutenant if he got the backing for a new expedition to the Americas. This was a good addition. Maldonado was a 30-year veteran, trusted leader, and an excellent soldier. In Santo Domingo, Oriana would first have to answer to Gonzalo Ferdinand de Oviedo, the governor of the island of Hispaniola. 
Oviedo was not just the governor. He had written several influential books about the New World and was a respected historian. This would be the first step for Oriana in organizing his return expedition. If he could win Oviedo to his side, it would go a long way to smoothing his way into the good graces of the Spanish court. For his meeting with Oviedo, Oriana would recount his tale to the governor. He also brought along his copy of the narrative written by Caraval, plus the priest's notes, as support. In addition to his conversations with Oriana, Oviedo also interviewed the four men who had been on the great trek down the Amazon. In the end, the governor was impressed by Oriana and his journey. Oviedo was a historian, and this kind of stuff was right up his alley. In fact, he was so impressed by Oriana's account, he wrote a letter to Europe asking that Oriana's accomplishments be announced to the world. For Oriana, this was a great start. He was being heralded as an accomplished explorer and visionary. That's the kind of press you gotta love. However, there was one thing, a blot on Oriana's record, and that was Gonzalo Pizarro. Remember, Pizarro considered Oriana a traitor who had abandoned him. Only a week before his landing in Cubagua, Pizarro had sent a letter to King Charles V in the Council of the Indies and told them of Oriana's betrayal. He had written in the letter, quote, Oriana has gone off and become a rebel, end quote. So, despite all the good things that had happened with Governor Oviedo, there was a cloud over Oriana's accomplishments. It was a cloud that could, potentially, mean his death. Anyhow, Oriana and Maldonado sailed back to Spain together in early 1543. Unfortunately, their ship would be damaged in the voyage and forced to dock in Portugal. By now, word of Oriana's expedition had reached Europe, and perhaps no one was more keen to find out more about the journey than King John III of Portugal. The Portuguese king and his ministers would invite Oriana to court, and there they would, basically, hold him prisoner. The Portuguese had some serious concerns about Oriana. This great voyage down the Amazon was a threat to their growing empire in South America. At the heart of it, they wanted to know if Oriana had ventured into Portuguese territory. And that brings us to the always murky world of the Treaty of Tordesillas. The Treaty of Tordesillas had basically split up the world between Spain and Portugal. This demarcation point cut northwest through South America, and the Portuguese were anxious to find out if the mouth of the Amazon was in their sphere of influence. Oriana would be a guest, I use air quotes there, of the Portuguese monarchy for three weeks. During this time, Portuguese business interests, likely at the behest of the crown, let Oriana know that they were interested in him leading a Portuguese expedition back to the Amazon. But in the end, Oriana was loyal to his native land and rebuffed any offers. He would finally be released, and in early May, Maldonado and Oriana would reach Spain. They arrived at the Spanish court in Valladolid on May 11, 1543. It had been roughly 16 years since Oriana had come home. Half of his life had been in the Americas. So, a bit ago we talked about the Gonzalo Pizarro cloud that hung over Oriana. I want to wrap up what happened to Pizarro before we continue with Oriana. Remember, Pizarro had come back to Peru to find that his brother, the governor, had been murdered. Now, it was Gonzalo's turn to take center stage. He had come back from the depths of the jungle, an epic journey in the eyes of many. He was practically a legend. In many people's minds, he was the successor of his brother. He had many supporters. So upon his return to Peru, Gonzalo Pizarro would find the Almagro faction in open rebellion against the crown. Eager for revenge, he would offer his services to the new governor, Licenciado Cristobal Vaca de Castro. But Vaca de Castro and the other Spanish higher-ups had had enough of the Pizarro clan. They were soldiers, not rulers, and they were happy to have Pizarro and his family on the sidelines. Vaca de Castro would defeat the Almagro faction in September of 1542. 
Diego Almagro the Younger, the rebellion's nominal leader, would be executed. So things might have been okay, but on November 20, 1542, the Spanish crown announced the implementation of what were called the New Laws. The New Laws were intended to stop the abuses of the colonial labor system, which basically was not much more than slave labor. The New Laws were inspired by the writings of Bartolomé de las Casas, who preached against the atrocities and exploitation of the Native American peoples. In time, the new laws were intended to pave the way to not only protect the native peoples, but to make them subjects of the crown and, gasp, give them actual rights. It was a radical thing that was being proposed. But the Spanish elites in the New World were against these new laws. They wanted and relied on cheap slave labor. They needed this source of labor to plow their fields and work their mines. The new laws were a direct threat to their way of life. So the elites of Peru got restless, and they turned to one of their own. Gonzalo Pizarro, who had retreated to his estates near La Plata to be their leader. Pizarro hated the new laws, and he quickly found himself the magnet of resistance to their implementation. It would not take long before an army coalesced around Pizarro, and the implementation of the new laws was pretty much ignored. Thus, the Spanish crown would send a new viceroy to Peru in March of 1544. The man's name was Blasco Núñez Villa, and he would quickly go on the offensive against the restless colonials. He would first imprison Governor Vaca de Castro, then demand that Pizarro disband his army and surrender to him. This was a bad move. Nunez Villa had no tact. He did not negotiate, just set out demands. When Pizarro refused, the viceroy declared war on Pizarro and his supporters. Another civil war was underway in Peru. Gonzalo Pizarro would be vicious and brutal once he got into the field with his army. He marched on Lima, and on the way he would execute 300 Spaniards when they refused to support him. Viceroy Núñez Villa's support would melt around him, and he would flee the city. On October 28, 1544, Pizarro rode into Lima with a 1,200-man army, along with 6,000 Indian porters, directly flaunting the new laws. For about a year, Núñez Villa would lead a guerrilla-style campaign against the better-armed and equipped and more numerous Pizarro-led forces, before being killed in a battle outside of Quito. Thus, by January 1546, Gonzalo Pizarro was the sole ruler of Peru. Everyone loved him, at least everyone in Peru. Ironically, around this time, a silver deposit of immense size was found in Potosi, Gonzalo Pizarro's territory. It would be the single greatest silver deposit ever found. I say ironic because Gonzalo Pizarro had desired wealth, and in the end it was really sitting right in front of him, well, really under him, and he just didn't realize it. Anyhow, Gonzalo Pizarro was the ruler of Peru, some would say king of Peru, as he answered to no one. Well, the Spanish crown wasn't about to let its colonies go rogue, so King Charles sent a new man to South America, Pedro de la Gasca. De la Gasca arrived in Panama with an extraordinary mandate. He was to make things right in Peru, and he had the power to do it. He was named the head of the judicial, military, and civil departments of the colony. It was the power of a king. De La Gasca was seen as a wide and shrewd man, and he was loyal to the crown. However, what he didn't have was a force to back up his power. He would have to do that himself. De La Gasca would first go to Panama. Here he would meet with Pizarro's commanders, including, most importantly, the naval officers. There he laid down the law to them. He said to these guys, you know, hey, look, I've got 15,000 men and 40 ships gathering in Spain. I don't want them coming here. It would be bad for you. So, I'm going to make things good. We're going to ditch the new laws. There's going to be a general amnesty. Things will go back to normal. The officers all took this in and said, Hey, that sounds pretty good. That's all we really wanted. 
and with one quick stroke, De La Gasca took control over Pizarro's 22-ship fleet on the Pacific Ocean. He then quickly went to work through back channels, passing on the same message throughout the colony. The new laws would be suspended, pardons were there for everyone, etc., etc. De La Gasca made deals, paid off people as necessary, even coerced them. All of it was to undermine support for the rebellion. De La Gasca even wrote to Pizarro and implied all was okay, and just said, hey, you know, lay down your arms, come home, and we'll go back to the way things were. It sounded like a pretty sweet deal. The colonists were getting what they wanted, no more new laws. But Gonzalo Pizarro was a different animal. He had been the ruler of Peru, and he liked it. He wasn't going to disband his army for anyone. So De La Gasca would try again, appealing to Pizarro's patriotism and honor as a soldier. But no luck. The Pizarros had been screwed over by too many people. The trust was not there. So, it was time for yet another civil war. And let's remember, many of those who had supported Pizarro had left his side. I mean, they had gotten what they wanted. They weren't interested in breaking away from Mother Spain or in helping Pizarro set up his own empire. So, war it was. On October 26, 1547, Pizarro would defeat De La Gasca on the plains of Jorina, high in the Andes, even though he had been outnumbered two to one. In the battle, Pizarro would personally lead the cavalry charge against De La Gasca's forces. After the victory, Pizarro then turned his forces toward Cuzco, the heart of royalist power. Again, De La Casca would offer Pizarro a way out. Amnesty, pardons, etc., etc. But it was not going to happen. Pizarro saw himself as invincible. De La Casca would reform his army, and on April 9, 1548, he would meet Pizarro at Jacuiano, near Cuzco. Pizarro had 900 men, De La Casca had 1,600 but other than a few shots at the beginning of the fight, there would really be no battle. Pizarro may have been a great soldier, but De La Gasca was playing a game beyond swords and cannons. As the battle was about to begin, to Pizarro's horror, his men began to desert and join the royalist army. It seems his men, particularly the officers, had been bought off by De La Gasca. De La Gasca had spent years laying the groundwork for this moment. He had been promising pardons, offering rewards, threatening cajoling and this was the time to play all of his cards. Officers defected, their troops going with them. And as the numbers of the royalist side grew greater and greater, and Pizarro's grew smaller and smaller, a tipping point was hit, and even Pizarro's loyal troops saw that they were in an impossible situation. To save their skins, they switched sides. When the mass defections were done, it was said that less than a dozen men stood with Pizarro. The battle was over before it had even begun. Seeing the situation, one of Pizarro's friends reportedly said, quote, Let us charge and die like Romans. End quote. But Pizarro replied, quote, Better to die like Christians. End quote. Thus, Gonzalo Pizarro surrendered. The next day, he took confession, was sentenced to death as a traitor, and beheaded. All of his properties were forfeited to the crown. Pizarro is said to have given his fine cloak and hat to the executioner, and he refused a blindfold. He then asked the executioner to, quote, Do his duty with a steady hand. End quote. His head was put on display as a warning to traitors and rebels. Gonzalo Pizarro was 42 years old. When I look back at Gonzalo Pizarro, the first thing I say is the man really was a monster. He was a mass murderer, a traitor, and much more. But he was also bold and fearless, and it's hard not to admire that. But in the end, he was undone by his own greed and hubris. So Gonzalo Pizarro could have been a thorn in the side of Francisco de Oriana, but from the moment of his return, Pizarro was not seen in a good light by the Spanish crown. They did not trust him, for good reason. If Pizarro had fallen in a line when he'd had the chance, he might have come out ahead and eventually turned his sights on Oriana. 
but the man had chosen to rebel and refused all chances of return to the fold. So, in May of 1543, even though Pizarro had written to the crown accusing Orana of treason, no one was really looking hard at these complaints. Let's face it, the Spanish crown didn't really trust the Pizarros, and Oriana had brought back a great story and the potential for riches. This paved the way for Oriana to be welcomed openly in the Spanish court. So, that wraps up the life of Gonzalo Pizarro. Back to Oriana. Oriana would present the account of the journey, written by Caraval, to those in power. Plus, he also delivered the documents written by a scribe, Isasaga, signed by all the men. This was all part of the covering his butt for leaving Pizarro. But all of these documents and stories were about the past. Oriana had a future in mind. He wanted to go back to the Amazon. He was convinced a great kingdom, or kingdoms, existed along the mighty river. After reading all these documents and quizzing Oriana, Spanish officials were excited about another potential kingdom of gold. But there was a problem to consider. Portugal. Could the mouth of the Amazon be in the sphere of Portuguese influence? The Spanish did not want to openly violate the Treaty of Tordesillas. It was a sensitive subject. So things went slowly, and Oriana would be frustrated by these delays. To him, the Spanish crown needed to move quickly and press their advantage while they had the chance. Thus, Oriana presented yet another detailed case to the crown, recounting the sacrifices he had made, both personally and financially, and more importantly, the potential profits involved. At this time, rumors began to reach Spain about other nations being interested in exploring the Amazon as well. The Portuguese, spurred on by Oriana's journey, reportedly were gathering a fleet to explore the river. And another shocking rumor began to spread, that the French were interested in a similar voyage. With pressures from all sides, the influential Council of Indies finally came to a conclusion that the Amazon River should be explored and settled, and quickly. And Oriana was the man to lead such an expedition. On February 14, 1544, Prince Philip, who was acting in his father's place, signed on to the deal. Oriana was named governor of the Amazon region, formerly called New Andalusia. He was given a charter to explore and settle and exploit the region. Here are the details. Oriana was first ordered to go to the Amazon, build and garrison two towns, one near the mouth of the river and the other inland. He was to take at least 300 Spanish soldiers, including 100 cavalry and 200 infantry. After founding the towns, Oriana was to head up river, along with eight priests, in an attempt to convert the natives. He could then settle any lands and domains that he desired. His order said that he could not take slaves, except for the occasional one as a guide, and he was to respect the Treaty of Tordesillas. Oriana would receive a salary of 5,000 ducats once the ships sailed. Also, he got a document issued that absolved him of any wrongdoing regarding leaving Pizarro. Thus, that black mark was forever off his blotter. So, this all sounds like a pretty sweet deal, but there is one thing that is missing. Money. The Spanish crown would not provide any funding for the expedition. This was very deliberate. The crown rarely funded these kinds of expeditions. Instead, it was up to those who were granted the charter to come up with the funds. The Spanish crown would, of course, get their royal fifth, but otherwise, they weren't taking a risk with their own money. Oriana was disappointed by the Spanish crown's offer. He was not a rich man, and he did not have friends with deep pockets. He needed cash. But let's remember, Oriana was a resourceful guy. He had not survived sailing down the Amazon by giving up. He would turn to a variety of sources to raise money, including private investors and relatives in Trujillo. By May 1544, he would have enough funds to purchase two caravels and two galleons. The galleons were large, and they would carry the bulk of the men and supplies across the ocean, while the caravels were smaller, and they would be able to sail deeper up the Amazon. 
So now he had ships, but Oriana had to outfit them. He tried again to get supplies from the Spanish crown, requesting weapons and ammunition, but again he was turned down. This would be his affair. Undaunted, Oriana pushed forward. One of the first things he did was hire Maldonado as second-in-command. Maldonado was the only man from the original journey to sign on for this second go-around. Oriana also hired a Genoese treasurer for the fleet, Vincencio de Monte. So, as he scrounged up funds and hired men for the expedition, Oriana was finding himself running into numerous roadblocks. He would find that promised financial backers would withdraw their support at the last minute, or men he had hired would suddenly back out. And to top it off, his second-in-command, Maldonado, disappeared. Oriana was concerned that someone was trying to sabotage his efforts. The obvious answer was the Portuguese, who were reportedly putting together an Amazon expedition of their own. Indeed, Oriana's fears would be confirmed when Maldonado would turn up in Portugal under the pay of the Portuguese government. It seems that the Portuguese, when they had tried and failed to hire Oriana the previous year to lead their expedition to the Amazon, had turned to Maldonado, apparently with some success. It was a blow to Oriana, and he would forever be in fear that the Portuguese would mount an expedition back to the Amazon ahead of him. Doggedly, Oriana pressed forward with his preparations. He would get a significant investment from his stepfather in October of 1544, but he still needed more money. Damonte, his treasurer, would finally offer the financing that Oriana needed. But Damonte also arranged something else for Oriana, a wife. Oriana's new wife was 14-year-old Ana de Ayala. It's not known exactly how the match came about. Romantics like to say that they fell in love, but we just don't know. The girl was reportedly from a family of modest means, and thus she did not bring any dowry with her, something that irritated Spanish officials who saw it as a missed opportunity. It's possible de Monte arranged the marriage as a favor to a family friend. In return, he agreed to step up and provide more cash to Oriana. No matter what the arrangements, Oriana had a new wife and money for his voyage. The cash provided by de Monte was enough, barely, for Oriana to finish outfitting the ships and hiring personnel. It's important to know that the Spanish crown took these expeditions very seriously. The last thing they wanted to do was grant someone a charter to explore a region and have that person fail miserably. That made no one any money. So each expedition, including Oriana's, had an inspector general assigned to it. The inspector general was the king's man, and he could approve, or nix, any voyage if he felt things weren't ready. For Oriana's expedition, the inspector general was a priest, Father Pablo de Torres. Oriana sailed his fleet of ships down the Guadalquivir River to San Lucar de Baramida in March of 1545. Torres, the inspector general, was not impressed by what he saw. He found the ships to be in substandard condition. Not all of the 300 soldiers were Spanish, and they did not have the 200 horses required by the charter. Torres ordered Oriana to not leave port or face a huge fine and the revocation of his commission. It was also at this time that Oriana received word that the Portuguese were in the process of outfitting an expedition to the Amazon. The news made Oriana desperate. He did not have all the required men and provisions. His ships were not up to snuff. He would need to get more money to get things going. But his fear of being beaten by the Portuguese overwhelmed him, and instead of waiting for approval from Spanish officials, he simply sailed off. He left Inspector General Torres, as well as all of the priests he was to have on his ships, on shore and put to sea on May 11, 1545. Before he left, Oriana conducted a raid on the local farmers, stealing cattle, sheep, and other livestock. Then, shortly after putting to sea, he stopped a caravel heading to Spain, seizing whatever supplies he could find. These were desperate measures. Oriana had pretty much become a pirate, stealing from his own countrymen. 
So Francisco de Orana was headed back to the Amazon. There would be no turning back, not after what he had done. His need to return to the Amazon had become an obsession. In many ways, Oriana probably saw himself like Cortez, who had burned his boats when he had arrived in Mexico to dissuade any of his men who might have second thoughts about the campaign against the Aztecs. For his journey, he had four ships, roughly 300 soldiers, plus there was a contingent of colonists, including his young wife, Ana de Ayala. So the small fleet headed to the Canary Islands, the always popular stop-off for ships heading west. Once in the Canaries, Oriana would spend three months there, refitting the ships. Next, they continued southwest to the Cape Verde Islands, looking to add more provisions before heading to South America. On the Cape Verde Islands, Oriana's bad luck would get worse. An epidemic would strike the men and women of the fleet, and 98 of them would die, forcing Oriana to abandon one of his ships. So this was not looking like the best gig in the world, and the crew felt the bad vibes as well. Another 50 men would desert while on the island, including three of his captains. Thus, before he even really set out into the open sea, Oriana had lost upwards of half of his men. But the losses were not going to stop Oriana. He would set sail, minus one ship and 150 men. Unfortunately, the fleet's bad luck held. The crossing would be miserable, as the remaining three ships would run into severe storms. The ships were undermanned, and water and food would run low. Then, just as the three ships neared Brazil, one of the vessels would simply disappear, never to be heard from again. Gone were 77 men and 11 horses. Finally, on December 20, 1545, the two remaining ships reached the Amazon. Two-thirds of the original complement were either dead or had deserted. After some searching, the Spanish would find a coastal village where the natives were friendly. Now, this would have been a wise place to regroup and recuperate. The men were weak from the long voyage, and only a dozen horses had survived the journey. But Oriana was described as obsessed with his desire to return up the Amazon. He wanted to move on. So, on December 25th, despite the protests from his men, he set out searching for a way up the river. It's important to remember that the Amazon's mouth is really 200 miles wide, and there are several major channels heading inland, as well as countless dead ends. Oriana had thought he had sailed up the correct channel, but he was wrong. He ended up getting lost, and the channel he had taken was not very populated. This meant that there were few natives to trade with, or even raid. That translates into no food. Oriana's ships would finally stop and set up camp. He decided he would dismantle the smaller of his two ships and build a river-going brigantine. Unfortunately, this was a bad place to establish a base camp. There was little food, and all the horses and dogs that had survived the ocean voyage would be eaten. There were also few natives to trade with, and those that they ran into were usually hostile. Over the next three months, 57 of the colonists and soldiers would die from starvation, sickness, and combat. This is amazing when you consider that Oriana had lost only 13 men on his trek down the Amazon several years earlier. When the brigantine was finally complete, Oriana took it, and the last of the ships that had crossed the Atlantic, to go find the main channel of the Amazon. If he could find that, he would find more prosperous villages, and most importantly, food. About 75 miles into their search, the last ship would be wrecked. A thick rope used for mooring the ship snapped due to a violent river tide, sending the ship spinning out of control. It then ran aground on an island. Luckily, the crew of the ship, including Oriana's wife, Anna, found safety on the island. And even more lucky, the natives who lived there turned out to be friendly, and they fed and sheltered the Spanish. Oriana was left with just his converted brigantine, which was too small for all of the survivors. It was October 1546. 
So Oriana left 30 men on the island and told them to basically figure it out. He would take the brigantine and explore, saying he would come back for them. But in reality, they were on their own, and they knew it. He took the rest of the men and his wife on the brigantine and set out to explore the Amazon. So let us take stock of things here. The Spanish are now in two groups. There was Oriana in the last of the ships, a small river-going brigantine. He was sailing into the Amazon Delta. Also, there were the 30 men stranded on the island where the last ship had been driven ashore and wrecked. Let's take each of these groups separately, starting with the latter group, the 30 survivors of the shipwreck left on the island. Well, they began to build a boat of their own. They had, after all, the wreckage of the ship to use as source material. These men would build a new brigantine, a task that would take them two months. When they were done, they would go looking for Oriana, but by this time he was long gone, and they would find nothing. They would ultimately set out up the coast of South America in a desperate attempt to reach civilization. As for Oriana, he would take his brigantine and explore the Amazon for 27 days. Juan Griego, the pilot, estimated that they traveled 500 miles as they searched the various channels and tributaries, but they did not find the main river channel that Oriana so desperately wanted. Even before departing the island, Oriana had been showing signs of illness. He was weak and delirious at times. As the brigantine searched the river, Oriana's delirium increased. He became more and more feeble and feverish. Still, it was said that he never lost hope of finding some village rich with gold or silver. It was a dream of an obsessed man. It was reported that Oriana finally gave up his dream of conquest and decided to, quote, return to the land of the Christians, end quote. To that end, the Spanish set off to gather food for the voyage. However, the Spanish were attacked by Indians, and 17 of the men were killed or injured in the fighting. Oriana's wife, Ana de Ayala, said at this point her husband was a broken man. His dreams were shattered, his health was ravaged, and his men were dying. She said this was all too much for Oriana, and that he died, quote, from grief, end quote. So, Francisco de Oriana was dead. It was November of 1546. He was 35 years old. He had died a broken man on the river he had so doggedly traversed just a few years before. But before we talk about Oriana's legacy, I want to quickly wrap up what happened to the rest of the expedition. The brigantine that Oriana had led into the Amazon's depths sailed back to the ocean and headed up the South American coast. Like Oriana and his two brigantines several years earlier, they caught the southern equatorial current and sailed up the South American coast. In late November 1546, 26 people from the expedition, including Oriana's wife Ana, reached the island of Margarita. Now, remember the 30 men Oriana had left stranded on the island two or three months earlier? As noted, they had built their own brigantine from the wreckage of the ship. After searching for and failing to find Oriana, they had headed up the coast. The 30 men had had a perilous voyage, as their brigantine was not particularly well made. Water had to be bailed day and night to keep it from sinking. In fact, things looked so bad that 10 of the men jumped ship at various points during the voyage up the coast, deciding that life in the jungles of South America was better than death on the ocean. But the small boat would persevere, and they would reach Margarita Island. There were 18 survivors in the second brigantine. They had arrived just a couple of days before Ana de Ayala and the other brigantine. So, the second expedition of Francisco de Oriana was over. Roughly 350 men and a handful of women had left Spain. Only 44 were still alive. All of the ships, the horses, the supplies, gone. It had been a disaster. So, with the dreams of finding and conquering another native empire gone, I want to split up the rest of our podcast into three buckets. 
First, we will do a recap on a few of the side characters in our tale. Second, we will then talk a little bit about the subsequent exploration of the Amazon. And then third, we will then finish with a focus on the legacy of Oriana. So let us start with the supporting cast of characters in our tale. First, there was Gonzalo Pizarro, who had died in Peru, executed for rebelling against the Empire. We pretty much covered his story, so he is done. Next, remember Maldonado? He had betrayed Oriana and gone over to Portugal. Well, I didn't find anything out about the man, so he just fades into history. Another side character is Ana de Ayala, Oriana's teen bride. She had survived the expedition and returned to Margarita Island. She would go to Panama and become involved with one of the survivors of the expedition, Juan de Peñalosa. I've read conflicting reports about the two. Some say the two did not marry, while others say that they did. I really don't know the answer. She reportedly lived in Panama until at least 1572, but after that we lose track of her. I did find one source that puts her dying in 1580, but I really don't know if that is reliable. In the end, like Maldonado, she fades away into history. The last person I want to mention is Friar Gaspar de Carvajal. Carvajal was a critical person to Oriana's journey because of the notes he took on the expedition and the subsequent account he wrote. I could not find his original work in English, but I have read a Google translation version of it. It's not perfect, but it's interesting. Thankfully, other writers have done this heavy lifting for us, and it makes Carvalho's writings a key source. Upon reaching civilization, Carvalho returned to Peru. He would hold various church-related posts for the rest of his life, working to convert the indigenous populations to Christianity. He would become quite a resourceful and influential person. He would help found many towns and churches and convents, and he seems to have been sympathetic to the plight of the native peoples, writing to the king of Spain detailing the abuses inflicted upon the Indians working in the silver mines of Peru. Carvajal died in Peru in 1584. He was 84 years old, and he appears to have been a decent and respected man. But Carvajal is most remembered for his journey down the Amazon and his writings about the expedition. The writings were popular in his lifetime, but later there was skepticism about his tales. I mean, Carvajal had written about large cities, well-developed roads, dense populations, and advanced peoples. Over the centuries, explorers found none of that, just jungles and simple natives. Many people took his writings to be propaganda and lies. Ultimately, Carvajal's writings would be mostly forgotten, but they would be rediscovered by historians in the late 1800s, and his full account would be published in 1895, reigniting interest in Oriana and his journey. Now, we are going to talk more about Carvajal's writings when we wrap up Oriana, so let's put a pin in that subject and move on. Next, I want to talk about the exploration of the Amazon and the aftermath of Oriana's two expeditions. For decades, there would be attempts to explore the depths of the region, mostly searching for the legendary city of gold, El Dorado. In 1560, another Spanish conquistador, Pedro de Ursua, would follow in the steps of Oriana and lead 370 men over the Andes Mountains. The expedition would be a disaster. A Basque soldier, Lope de Aguirre, would essentially go insane, killing Usua and taking command of the expedition. In his madness and paranoia, he would execute over 100 of his own comrades. Like Oriana, Aguirre would actually sail all the way down the Amazon and then up to Margarita Island off the coast of Venezuela. He would later be killed when he tried to conquer Panama. A fictional version of this voyage down the Amazon is told in the film Aguirre, The Wrath of God by Werner Herzog. It's a very weird but kind of cool film, with Klaus Kinski making a very wonderfully crazy conquistador. The movie actually mixes in characters from Oriana's expedition, and it's not historically accurate, but like I said, it's kind of cool. 
Otherwise, there would be other attempts to head up the Amazon and try and find the great civilizations that Oriana had reported. And not just the Amazon River, expeditions would explore other major rivers in search of loot, such as the 1595 endeavor led by Sir Walter Raleigh, who would go searching for El Dorado up the Orinoco. Like everyone else, he found nothing. By the 1600s, the skeptics were out in full force. El Dorado was just a legend, they said, nothing more. There were no great civilizations to be found, no grand cities or mighty empires, just lots and lots of jungle. This led to a lot of questioning about Oriana's original journey. Where were the grand civilizations he had described? I think that's a good segue to our last topic, the legacy of Francisco de Oriana. For that, I think first and foremost, the thing that Francisco de Oriana did was to open up the Amazon basin to the world. It's a region that even today we are still exploring. Oriana accomplished this because he was a smart, tenacious, respected, and resourceful man. It is hard not to respect the fact that he was able to get 43 of his 57 men home. He was, on this first expedition, immensely wise in his decision-making. He was not consumed by greed or anger. He saw the big picture. It was an extraordinary journey. Sadly, the Amazon would consume Oriana. The desire to return became an obsession for him, and it would ultimately kill him. As I talked about a bit ago, Oriana's legacy was mixed. He had returned with tales of Amazon warriors and grand civilizations. What was that all about? Was he lying? Was it all BS? Honestly, it's hard to tell. For many years, people thought he was lying, because when explorers sailed up the Amazon in the 16, 17, and 1800s, they found none of the grandiose things described by Oriana. Where were they, and did they ever exist? I want to answer these things by asking a simple question. Why would Oriana report these things if they didn't exist? I mean, think about it. He was obsessed with returning to the Amazon. He died from that obsession. Why go to all the trouble to report great civilizations unless he actually believed them to be out there? I mean, if it's just a bunch of guys in crappy huts, there's no reason to want to go back to the Amazon. But Oriana did, and his obsession with the Amazon shows he believed these wealthy kingdoms were there to be conquered. That was not BS. So, if Oriana did find great people and places, why didn't subsequent people come across them as well? The answer is a couple of things. First, early explorers, not just Oriana, did report finding signs of impressive civilizations in the Amazon region. Scientists estimate that around 1500, the Amazon region had a population of 8 million people. By 1900, it was 1 million. By 1980, it was 200,000. So what happened to all these people? The answer is likely disease. Remember, when Pizarro and Oriana came across the Andes, they brought smallpox with them. Within decades, the native people would be decimated by it and other diseases that had been brought from Europe. So it is possible that Oriana did come across some impressive civilizations, only for them to be decimated by disease within a hundred years. It would not take long for the jungles to swallow up towns and cities and retake fields and farms. Thus, Oriana likely did find some impressive people and places. It's also possible that he embellished some of those reports, such as with the Amazons, as a way to lure financial backers for his return trip. No matter what happened, Francisco de Oriana's journey down the Amazon River was extraordinary. I use that word a lot in my podcast, but this one really deserves that description. 4,000 miles on the river, 1,400 more miles at sea. It was an amazing achievement, and Oriana is remembered because of it to this day. A few final notes. For a time, the Amazon was actually called the Oriana River, before it was given its current name. Also, today there are two cities named after him, Puerto Francisco de Oriana in Ecuador and Francisco de Oriana in Peru. 
There is also an Oriana province in Ecuador. With regard to popular culture, I've mentioned the film Aguirre, The Wrath of God, but there is another film where Oriana plays an important role, and that is Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The 2008 film is, sadly, not very good, with the history being bad and the plot convoluted. Oh well, you can't win them all. So, that is it. That is the life of Francisco de Oriana, the first man to traverse the mighty Amazon River. I hope you enjoyed our tale. Thank you for listening. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.